News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan here with Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. Hello. Good morning. Hey. In just a bit, Christy and Harry will be joined by Albert Fox Khan of STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, who joins to explain why the congestion pricing scheme coming to Manhattan next year, complete with still another network of cameras, will likely lead to even more quote-unquote ghost cars and plates on the streets of New York City. But first, here's just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York City. Hey. The New Yorker ran a 13,000-word piece about how, stop the presses, Eric Adams often stretches the truth when it comes to his own biography. Uh, The story includes a mention of the interview on FAQ NYC where Adams said he'd carry a gun and get rid of his security detail as mayor. Spoiler alert, he did not. And material taken from several of my daily news columns. It's a well-written piece full of new quotes from Adams, his brothers, and others in a circle. But it begs the question about to me at least, of what the value is in 2023 of a huge magazine story detailing how Adams leveraged his bio while running in 2021. The teenager, who hasn't been named, who stabbed and killed O'Shea Sibley, turned himself in this week as hundreds mourned the 29-year-old talented ballroom dancer. In vigils, there were also protests and dance celebrations at the uh, gas station where Sibley was killed and in Manhattan. Thousands of rowdy teens mostly boys, converged in Union Square on Friday after a social influencer promised to give away free PlayStations there, triggering a huge police response. 66 people were arrested, while the mayor credited the NYPD for what he said was their huge restraint in responding. A law enforcement source told me that that person had heard, quote, an experienced disorder control sergeant wanted to follow policy with mass arrests, photos and narratives of every prisoner to keep track, and got overruled by new assistant commissioner on scene. Uh, Adams, um, actually at the Sibley Memorial at the gas station on Saturday, blamed outside agitators for the incident and said parents, not police, bore responsibility for what happened. He told teens that, quote, you don't get to get free Game Boys and bring smoke bombs and bring M80s and bring other disruptive items, unquote. Federal Judge Laura Swain is going to hear arguments on Thursday for appointing a receiver to take control of Rikers and the city's other jails, as calls for that have grown, while the latest report by sober and sane federal monitor Steve Martin found, quote, little progress, unquote, toward recommended reforms on the watch of Adams appointed Department of Correction Commissioner Louis Molina. And finally, a shark bit the leg of a 50-year-old woman taking off a pound or several pounds of flesh in the waters off a Rockaway beach on Monday evening. That's the first shark attack by New York City Beach since 1953. The woman is now in serious but stable condition. Katie, you've been covering the Rockaways, the lifeguards, the beaches for roughly forever. I got to ask, is there something in the water? (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in the water. And there's uh, a lot of, I mean, it's funny, the last, I guess, known shark attack was from 1953. I mean, attack... Until I know the motives of the shark, I don't want to say it was an attack. Um, It was just the sharks living their lives. But yeah, you know, I think with the cleaner waters, you're going to see more sea life, obviously, there. So um, pretty brutal. It's very rare. I will say there was a flyer or not a flyer, one of those 
plane messages flying a few weeks ago that reminded people you're more likely to get skin cancer from sun exposure than get bit by a shark, um, which was, it made me reapply my sunblock. But yeah, there's, I think over the last few years with the shark sightings on Long Island, there's been um, heightened uh, surveillance from New York City parks. They've had closures if they've seen sightings and they've spotted sharks and told people to get out of the water. The beaches in Rockaway today on Tuesday, August 8th are closed um, for swimming. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they think, like the shark just hung around or something. Um, I I don't know if they're going to like try to arrest the shark. I don't know what the plan is, but yeah, the ocean is very powerful and dangerous. And sometimes there's also, you know, my whole thing is the dolphins can be kind of rude too. So who knows what the dolphins are up to, but yeah. Do we have seals? Like the California. Oh, we got seals. Oh, yeah, we have seals. And are they the, aggressive like the California seals? No, I mean they don't often. They appear on the beach, um, usually like in the colder weather. Sometimes they go out of the water on the sand to warm up. Um, you're usually supposed to keep a safe distance from them. Um, I don't know if they're like gonna attack you. Maybe if you go near them. I mean, everyone, if you get too close could attack right. you. Hey, listen, people included. Yeah, I a, exactly. I have a quick question though, Katie, since you are literally my go-to person for all things oceanic, <laughs> lifeguard, etc. But you know, with climate change and the warming of the waters, you know, the fact that these shark uh sharks seem to be coming closer and closer to shore in not just New York, but you know, beaches all across the country, is there lifeguard training for what to do if a shark bites a swimmer or is that not yet on the docket for the lifeguard safety training manual? No, that's a good question. And it goes to the lifeguard training, which is very problematic. Uh, I think if someone gets bit by a shark, it's going to go right to EMS and and the fire department. Mm -hmm. I spoke to a lifeguard this morning who said, I guess some Coney Island lifeguards told them that they always keep a tourniquet. They have that in their medical emergency. But as I've repeated multiple times, the lifeguards, despite being in a life-saving role and a life-saving job, they they do not have a lot of the life-saving equipment. you know, it's not like they have uh, a forerunner to rush someone up. That's all going to be on EMS and fire. Um, but I think what they do get when you're on the ocean, you, you're, you're trained to spot like a rip current and you're also trained to spot a fin. And what could that fin be? You see a lot more schools of dolphins out in Rockaway. I, growing up out there, we never had any dolphins. I tell people this and I sound like crazy. I'm like, we. it's only the last maybe eight years where I've seen dolphins on the mm. regular like all the time. There have been whales. There's also different kinds of sharks, um, little sand sharks and that kind of thing. But yeah, they're trained to look for fins and then they can determine that's a dolphin. It's a safe enough distance. But then in in previous summers, there have been shark sightings or presumed shark sightings. And then they sort of close the the beaches down for a little bit just to let them go where they got to go. Just to correct, by the way, the 1953 shark bite was a teenager who'd been fishing and hooked a shark. Uh, the last shark attack, basically from a surfer or beachgoer, a Rockaway Beach was 1909. Wow. Well, I'd seen, I found on my newspapers.com clip, some 16-year-old kid was bit by a shark swimming with some friends in 1950. Interesting. Um, it, it was, they said it was 91 degrees and the city was melting. If only they knew what was to come. Um, <laughs> 91 degrees? Yeah. That's, that's like, like a cool, smooth, cool like, breeze. Yeah. I'm sweating from my elbows now. Um, yeah. So that was the sharks. Stay safe in the water. There's a, there's, I will say it's very rare. I wouldn't, I would go in the ocean today if I didn't have to work. I mean, what's it going to, I mean, it'd be kind of, the woman got a big chunk out of her, but 
at least you get to tell people for the rest of your life, like I got bit by a shark and I survived. Did they did they capture the shark? No. The shark it, is free. Could could I don't well, know. I, mean, I sh- kind of like that. I really can't stand when it's like, you know, and I I get it, you know, but like when you're when a uh, a mountain lion or a bear attacks someone in like a national park right. and then they euthanize the mountain lion. I'm like, the mountain lion lives here. Yeah. And what did you do to the mountain lion? I don't know. But like the fact that the animal immediately gets euthanized, I just feel like, I don't know. They're just like, well, if they did it once, they'll do it again. I'm like, well, people are always going to go hiking. So, I mean, are we just going to literally kill all the animals because we're encroaching in their space? Yeah, the shark is gone. They're not capturing the shark. Right. This well, is he's like, back telling his friends. He's like, look, I just like bit someone and got away yeah, with it. He's the bat. Like, this is like the police. This is, you're not going to get the SRG cops to find the shark, um, <laughs> which is a good, we can now talk. That was a good transition to what happened in Union Square last week. If you want, if we want to talk about um, a PlayStation 5. I don't know what I would ride over. I don't know if it would be a PS5, but I'm also not a teen anymore. So I, for me, when the mayor brought up, he said, you can't you can't bring fire explosives when you're going to get your Game Boys. Game and Boy. Me personally, I was Game like, Boy. oh, man, I would do a lot for a, a working Game Boy these days. A <laughs> PS5, I wouldn't even know how to play. <laughs> working yeah. game. You know what, uh, listeners, get on eBay and let's get Harry a working <laughs> Game Boy. Harry, I'll get you. You want me to? That's like I'm always looking for uh, workable iPods on eBay because I'm like, I miss an iPod. But oh, yeah, I've got I've got two workable iPod Nanos that I still listen to on the subway because I don't like having my phone out. Yeah. Um, and I'm also one billion years old. Now I do have this question though because Katie, when this came up, and Harry and I were talking about something different, I had no idea who this YouTube sensation. Oh, me was. neither. I learned I about had, him Friday. Zero idea. And I'm fascinated with knowledge silos. You know, when, I mean, it's summertime, so I'm not with my students. Usually I find out quite a bit of what's going on in their world because I hear them talking before class and it comes up in various examples. But I'm, it's somewhat frightening to know that this man is incredibly famous, popular, powerful, whatever it may be, with millions of followers. And when I say I've never, I mean, not even a whisper of like, who he is, what he does, why he's famous, and how he can mobilize thousands of kids to drop what they're doing and come to get a free PlayStation. And was he was he lying? I mean, was there ever a PlayStation that was going to be given out? I know Best, Best Buy shut their doors and locked them. I mean, I'm surprised the Best Buy is still up and running. But how how did he think that he was going to pull this off with giving away a free PlayStation? I actually was at dinner last night with a friend who has a tween son and she was explaining to me all these YouTubers and these Twitch streamers that the kids watched. And I'm saying the kid's like an old lady, but I think that's what they do. And I actually had never heard of Mr. Beast, who's another person who gives away stuff. I only heard of him because a friend of mine, her husband looks like Mr. Beast and they were being stopped in the street by people who were like, are you Mr. Beast? Because he gives money away, he gives cars away. So after Friday, I was watching Channel 4's 4 o'clock news, and I think I was learning about this streamer at the same time as Jonathan Deanst. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know who these people are. But you have, it's it's an, it's an a world that I am not familiar with, but they have millions of followers. Mm-hmm. And kids watch their live streams, they play video games, they do stunts, they they give things away. So I think, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get, and also I, I guess getting the PlayStation, the PS5 is a draw, but then also kids these days, and I understand the impulse, we had the early bits days. of, no, we I, growing up, I had early social media. Um, 
in high school, at least aim and stuff. Everything you're doing is for the validation of others. I mean, adults do that too, but you want to be seen on your live stream or on your Instagram or your Snapchat, like in Union Square with, I don't know, right. I guess that's you're in the, the mix. Draw. You're in the mix. Well, I, one of the stories I read was a 20-year-old man who didn't even want a PS5. He just saw it was going down on social media and went to Union Square. So that's what he just wanted to be involved in part of, I guess, the quote-unquote community that is. I mean, this is where, you know, there is a difference between Chrissy and Harry, who were Gen Xers, who grew up with Game Boys and, you know, we're like feral people because... <laughs> You know, we we went from yeah. kind of nothing to everything yeah. um, technologically. And so this idea that, you know, a FOMO is just like, well, either you have a bike and some skates or you don't. Like, that's kind of, either you can get there on your bike or you can't. That's the FOMO. But we didn't have, you know, telephones the way that kids do now. Where it's like, I don't know. We were just out. And if you bumped into somebody, you bumped into them. And if not, you missed them. Now, everything you, you is- may have missed the whole, the the big thing, whatever it is. Go, go, Harry. He is, he has younger kids. He can explain the psychology of. Right. I can explain nothing. My kids do know, my older one knows who Mr. Beast is. And it's like, those things aren't real. He's making it up. I figure that's right. But I also have no idea what we're talking about. What I would like to know is how uh, the NYPD, (laughs) which monitors and surveils everything and has a whole gang unit that basically works by watching people's, you know, uh, Facebook channels and like the beefs and whatnot that are popping off there and has a whole database based on that pretty much totally missed this event so they had to declare like a a level four live mobilization which is like the highest level because they were taken totally aback by uh how many people assembled yeah i i had this conversation with a friend who's you know she has a lot of cops in her family so she was i was like i'm not mad at the the cops who were there it's this NYPD intelligence unit that like allegedly is supposed to be monitoring everything we do. And these B cops, you see the clips, they were using like pieces of plywood to sh- like, don't you have shields? Right. And one other rant very, very briefly, I saw Ben K back who annoys the shit out of me. This is, this is the opposite. This is like when I side with Nicole Gelinas, when they're like, Oi. what what happened on Friday? It wasn't a riot. Everybody relax. I'm like, how the fuck would you describe it? I'm sorry. Like you were not there. You were at home. Like the reporters, the TV reporters, Stefan Kim was like scared. Like if someone, if you were around dozens of kids who were jumping on cars, you could be the most anti-car person in the world, but I'm sorry. If you're destroying someone's car, like fuck off. Like I just was like, I'm not saying these kids should go to the fucking federal prison but how else would you like to describe it you know you could you could be like new york is you know it's sort of like there's not two sides it's not new york is a shithole hell hole blah 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 and new york is the greatest place in the world there's like a medium and i just when everyone is so reflexively gets like god everyone just like relax everything was fine i'm like no it was a little scary looking and so this question of having tremendous information and yet uh, getting caught in some sense with your pants down is, so to speak, is perhaps a perfect segue to bring back to the podcast, Mr. Albert Fox Cut. Albert, welcome. Hi, Albert. Hello. Oh, my gosh. So great to see I you know. all. I know. Nice glasses, by the way. <laughs> and bookshelf. Thank you. 
Uh, my my girlfriend gets all the credit on the glasses. <laughs> hey, Adam! Oh my God! It's uh, it's been ages. How you doing? How you doing? Oh, you know, uh, usual dystopian dumpster fire, just different. Uh, you know, different flavors. All right. Albert, thank you so much for joining us again on FAQ. I love when you're here. Um, for our listeners out there who remember Albert, uh, Albert Fox Khan is of STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. And I wanted to have you on because we keep talking about congestion pricing. It seems like it's becoming a reality. Um, with congestion pricing, we'll bring even more cameras and networks of cameras. Um, and obviously more surveillance with police and I'm sure other agencies and entities. So can you just give us like an overview of where we are and what's to come? And give me a scale of one to 10. How concerned should I be? I mean, well, first (laughs) off, it's so nice to be back. Thank you for having me. And like always happy to talk about all the terrifying technologies (laughs) going bump in the night. Yeah. So right now, um, I would say we're on a scale of like, one to 10 black mirrors in terms of like how many seasons of black mirror are we squeezing Mm -hmm. into current like new york city policing practices and right now it's it's pretty bad but with congestion pricing it's going to be yet another way that there's so much data being tracked about every vehicle around the city and the thing people have to keep in mind it's cumulative Right. Because you have all of these different data points, the license plate readers, the MTA trip data from Omni, the facial recognition programs. And it's increasingly creating a city where we can't go anywhere without a record uh, that follows us around. Um, So maybe it would be helpful to just start off with congestion pricing. So we hear about it a lot. It's basically a toll for entering uh, what they call the central business district in New York City, basically um, New York South of 96th Street. Um, and with Manhattan the South of 96th Street. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Manhattan <laughs> South of 90. I, I'm a Brooklynite. I still, uh, you still <laughs> see that uh, uh, Manhattanite uh, uh, viewpoint coming out every once in a while. But Yeah, so you have all of these ways of trying to track people when they come into the, you know, to Manhattan south of 96. And that essentially means a lot of license plate readers. The problem is we know that license plate readers are a terrible technology because they have led to something that I see, that a lot of drivers see, and it's the bean of our existence. It's all of these cars going around with mutilated license plates, with fake paper plates with license plate covers that make it impossible to see the cars. And so you have people who are doing that, not because they think, oh, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to commit a crime and I want to make sure that I can get away without being seen. Most of the time, this is just people who don't want to pay the toll. And I got it. I have to be clear. When we went down to one police plaza and looked for how many cops had uh, personal vehicles, with uh, fake plates or mutilated plates, we found over a dozen in just an hour walking around one police plaza. So this is something that the police themselves are doing every day. And so the more we rely on license plate readers as a way to track and toll people for going around the city, the more we're creating an incentive for people to hide or mutilate their license plate, which then means that when you actually do have that high-risk scenario, like a chase, where you're trying to track a vehicle, there are more and more vehicles that you can't. So 
this is, I've been a little stuck on this. We've had this massive increase in the number of chases that that's clearly a policy decision, but it's clearly also related to the widespread use of license plate scanners. Basically, every patrol car now has a scanner that is reading every license plate it passes. You know, so so real panopticon sort of stuff. And every time there's a chase or anything else involving cars, you know, um, it's it's uh, officers became aware they were passing a vehicle with stolen plates or whatever. And that's where this comes from. Weirdly, my understanding is that these find every plate number that's been reported stolen or whatever, but they can't find fake plates. Like they don't have the universe of real plates to uh, to be like, well, that is a fake plate, as that's become a big problem that the mayor and police officials keep talking about. So obviously your concern is the, the overreach of surveillance, but this seems like a remarkable, at least temporary, hole in the whole setup we have that also means it's sort of the, 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 the suckers who are getting caught the same way speed cameras are much better at catching people going 42 in a 25 say then the person going 95 with paper plates who's not concerned about that or paying their tolls at all can you talk a little about what new york is implementing right now in terms of our readers what's going to happen with congestion pricing all of that your concerns and what cities have managed to find some of the right ways to go about doing this yeah so for people who've driven around new york city a lot you know the east side of Manhattan, it's pretty easy to do congestion pricing because the FDR, there aren't a whole lot of places to come on and off of the highway. But when you're on the west side, you have so many streets where you can just turn off. It's I grew up, you know, half a block off the west side highway, and you could just turn on to it like any other street. And so what you you couldn't put a toll booth on every uh you know west side cross street, you know, from uh, FIDI all the way up to, you know, 59th. So what you see the MTA doing is talking about having these camera systems that instead are going to photograph all of the cars when they're coming into that central business district, that when you make that turn off of the highway, because they don't want to toll people just for taking the West Side Highway, you're going to have that record and that you're going to have to keep those records for a while because they'll toll people depending on how often they're driving in and out. And there's been a lot of debates about like whether you also then want to record how long people are parked and whether they're actually moving throughout the day. And so what you see is a lot of pressure to move towards a system where you're going to have cameras that basically are tracking every car in you know Manhattan below 96th Street. And already you're you're part of the way there because when you look at the number, you know, the NYPD has more than 15,000 cameras. They already, the, they have access to more than 30,000 cameras from partner organizations through the domain awareness system. They have thousand more uh, cameras on patrol cars, all running ALPR scans. And so they're taking this periodic census of every vehicle. And right now, there are no guardrails for how that uh, information is used. You want to use it to track, you know, where your ex-girlfriend's going? It's not clear there's anything to stop you. You want to use it to, you know, track random people around the neighborhood? It seems like just about every NYPD officer is going to have that ability to tap into that database to do it. And then you compare that to a country like Sweden, where they have license plate readers that are used to toll people when they go into the central business district. 
but it's night and day. They lock that down. That information is used to toll the vehicle, to send them the toll in the mail, and that's it. You don't actually hold on to that data. You don't make that data available to the police. And there have been cases where the police have actually tried to sue the the transit authorities to get access to that data, and they've refused. They've held the line and made it clear that this is transportation data, not policing data. And what we see alarmingly in New York is that every bit of transportation surveillance quickly becomes yet another piece of NYPD data. And we see that with just about every agency across the board. So the NYPD is just always adding to the breadcrumbs that they're collecting, right? Uh, So DNA stuff, different registers, gang databases, camera information, and so on. And Wait, can we pause? And why do we call it a gang database? Because this is one of those pieces of NYPD branding that is so insidious, and it comes into the conversation. We're talking about thousands of young Black and Latinx men who, boys, post on Facebook, who have been put, and it's the social media yeah. map of who talks to who, and if you're, you, 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 your cousin is doing stuff and you're talking to your cousin, there you are on the, the database, congrats, right? Yeah, and so we don't call them gang databases because that's the NYPD branding because the vast majority of these kids have never been in a gang. It's a pre-crime database. It's minority report. It is trying to predict who will commit a crime in the future based off of who they know today. And it is is just a digital dragon. This is my question. Is the defense of a lot of this is, look, we're finding past serial killers, you know, because somebody put their information into Ancestry. We have this information. If there are kids boasting about the violent shit they're doing online, we should be monitoring that and keeping that information. And so the defense of all this, which is in some ways the same as the critique is, this is useful. This is how we monitor and maintain public safety. It would be crazy not to be aware of things when we're able to, about where the cars are in Manhattan, about who's talking stuff to who online, all of that. So I'd like you to unpack that a bit, uh, why protections are useful and in order here, and what's wrong with that uh, defense of all of these systems and let us just gulp up data everywhere we can And then trust us, we have internal safeguards, you know, there's judges watching stuff, Uh, we're going to do this right. Well, first off, there are no judges watching any of this. So all of this is done without a court order, without a warrant, without approval by any civilians. And think about it, there's a rule of law issue. If there was a country somewhere else on the planet where police officers on their own decided what to purchase, how to track the public, and to use that in secret without any oversight by the courts, and then to build up massive databases all in the name of public order— we would call it authoritarian. We would say that it wasn't consistent with democracy, and yet that is American policing. American policing is one of the least democratic institutions we have because ultimately those in power who theoretically can control it don't actually have the political will to do it. But with these sorts of systems, where's the evidence that any of it works? You know, if we were spending billions of dollars on sanitation infrastructure, fire infrastructure, DOE infrastructure, well, maybe not DOE, but almost any other agency, we would want evidence that was actually effective. But on the rare occasions that we actually look at these systems, it's garbage in, garbage out. 
So one of the few systems we have, you know, third-party reviews of the underlying technology is called ShotSpotter. It's directional microphones that are placed primarily in low-income neighborhoods, largely in and around public housing, that supposedly find when there's a gunshot going off, except 90% of the gunshots reported, according to Chicago uh, Inspector General, are fake. They can't actually tell the difference between gunshot and car backfire. And with a lot of these systems, they are claiming that they can decide who is going to commit a crime in the future based off of what they're posting on social media today or based off of what color shirt they're wearing today, even though they have basically every color of garment listed as gang affiliate. And yet when you ask for the evidence that this actually works, there isn't any. There's no evidence that any of this is effective. And if we thought about any other demographic cohort, like let's think about if we said that the way to predict financial crime on Wall Street was to create a massive database of who all the finance people were talking to, because that's how insider trading happens. It's friends giving information to friends. And we know that there's signs that people are committing insider trading, like they're sporting flashy jewelry and they're, they're going out and getting a sports car. And we were to build up a database to try to you know identify insider trading before it happened. People would say that that is intolerable, but when it's, you know, young Black and Latinx boys, when it's, you know, low-income communities, when it's the same communities that are always over-policed and over-surveilled by the NYPD, we somehow think, oh, yeah, now we think the cops can actually predict the future. So, Albert, can you tell us the role of, say, like, city council members in all of this conversation? Because it feels like the can is really far down the road and it feels like we haven't had much input. I know we read about congestion pricing, congestion pricing, but there's very rarely this very clear link that you were making between congestion pricing, NYPD, hyper surveillance and all the things. What are city council members doing? Where's the mayor on all of this? And is it too late for regular citizens to have some serious pushback to say, we actually don't want this data shared. We don't want this data collected. Where are we on all of that? Well, because the MTA state agency, most of the action is going to be up on in Albany on this one. So what, you know, one of the bills that we've been working on at STOP is to modernize a law called the PPPL, which basically governs when data can be shared from agencies with the police department. And so we want legislation statewide that has guardrails that says, hey, the the MTA can't be this just open, you know, uh, trove of data for the NYPD. If the NYPD has a court order, sure. It's like any other agency, like any other company. But you we shouldn't have we ha- shouldn't have to accept that when one government agency is collecting data for transportation or for education or for utilities or for any other aspect of life, that that data is going to go over to the police. You know, when we have drones going up to inspect building facades, which is a proposal, we shouldn't have to worry that that becomes yet another way to snoop inside our apartments. And this is sort of a fundamental legal question. You know, there's some parts of this where the city council can do more. You know, we've uh, been pushing for a while now for legislation 
that would strengthen the POST Act that we helped pass back in 2020. This is the law that requires the NYPD to disclose every new form of surveillance that it's using and to give the uh, public a chance to comment. It was a, a first step, but the NYPD has flagrantly violated it. And so we're pushing for the city council to strengthen that law, make it so that there's a chance to actually sue the NYPD when there's a violation, to actually make sure that there are real consequences when they ignore those requirements. But, you know, the mayor, rather than... <laughs> I. <laughs> take a Look, breath. Can we just take all be honest? Every time we say, we just gotta take a breath. <laughs> like, like I can't say I have high hopes for Eric Adams. I can't even say I had middling hopes for Eric Adams. But I had some, some hope that he would be willing to push back against some of the most blatantly like invasive and unproductive forms of surveillance theater. Like why? These- why would and and you know Albert, you know I love and respect you, but why would you think that a mayor who identifies as a cop first, very often, far too often for my taste, why do you think that he would push back from the very agency that a would get money doing all this stuff, and b give them more power, which we see he's still very much connected in his identity to the NYPD. I mean, I first met Eric Adams when I was a college student and, you know, my then boss, Norman Siegel, and I were monitoring uh, the RNC protests Mm -hmm. along with Eric. And back then he was someone who was willing to call BS on like the worst abuses at one police plaza. Yeah, he was a police captain. Yeah, I disagreed with a lot of what he was doing, but he was still willing to speak truth to power. But once he became the power, the truth kind of disappeared. And so I, I think I would have hoped that he cared enough about real public safety gains to stop with some of the nonsense gimmicks, but instead he's just doubled down on the gimmicks as a way to capture the news cycle. Things like the NYPD messaging drones as a way to respond to the pushback against his really terrible response to the Canadian wildfires. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very good at using the latest gadget as a way to distract people from what's uh, creating headaches for him. So Albert, then I have a follow-up zooming out of New York City then. Who are your allies in Albany? And then I want to shift just a little bit to other cities. Are you all looking at other cities who are doing it right? Or is New York City following other U.S. cities who have already gone down the wrong path? So we first off, like it's been amazing to see Kristen Gonzalez uh, in the Senate this year. She's the chair of the Technology Committee and just like to have someone who knows the technology that well, who really comes to it from a place of expertise and also is willing to, you know, question a lot of the entrenched orthodoxy up in Albany has been really thrilling for me uh, this year. And, you know, we continue to build out our uh, coalition more broadly there. You know, uh, Senator Zellner Myrie has been a great champion on the geofencing legislation. We continue to see growing numbers of people signing on to that in both chambers. And I'm really hoping that 
it goes through in January, and New York will be the first state in the country to outlaw geofence warrants. Which is? Which are this type of digital dragnet that allow police to track, you know, thousands of protesters with a single court order or allow police to track every person at an abortion clinic or every person at a house of worship. It's really this dystopian surveillance tool that I, I've talked about it before on past episodes, but it's the the majority of warrants to Google these days are geofence warrants. And we, you know, we see a growing number of states that are positioned to follow New York's lead, a number of introduced bills uh, copying the ones that we uh, helped draft up in Albany. And that's going to hopefully um, move forward uh, early, early uh, next year. But, you know, we, we unfortunately, at the very top up in Albany, see a real contradiction because we have a governor who has talked about wanting to make New York a sanctuary for abortion care, for gender affirming care, to allow people from all across the country to come here and get medical services at a time they're increasingly criminalized. And she's the same woman who said, well, you think Big Brother is watching? Good. When she reached, when she rolled out uh, cameras inside of MTA trains. And she doesn't see the contradiction that a lot of the same surveillance tools that she is promoting as part of the security theater to make people feel comfortable uh, back in the trains are the same systems that out-of-state law enforcement are going to look to to try to target abortion care in New York. And so we have real questions about, well, why is New York law enforcement still part of the fusion centers operated by the federal government, sharing information about New Yorkers with out-of-state law enforcement and federal agencies? Why is New York still allowing a lot of these invasive surveillance practices that will probably be used by you know, law enforcement in Texas, in Florida, in other states to target people who come here to get care. And I, I, you just can't have it both ways. You can't have both a surveillance state and a sanctuary state for medical care. And then lastly, I just want to zoom out to the international um, space. You mentioned Sweden. Sorry, I'm circling back from like 20 minutes ago. But you mentioned Sweden. I remember during my year in London, this was in the late 90s. I mean, they were ahead of the game with their CCTV mm-hmm. surveillance. And, you know, it was just a, sort of a conversation. It's like, yeah, London surveils everyone. You know, it's mainly on the tube for safety. And so we didn't really think about it. But where are we with international cities, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Yeah, so, you know, we are working with groups um, all around the country and increasingly around the world because you're right, London was the first to roll out what they called the Ring of Steel back in the late 80s and early 90s, first to target the IRA, then to target, you know, knife crime, then to target. It always has an evolving justification and never actually works all that well. But, you know, we work with groups in New Delhi that are fighting facial recognition and biometric data capture in India. We work with groups in Nigeria that are trying to figure out how to set up sustainable digital society and, you know, civil rights guardrails there. We work with groups in, you know, states all across the U.S. as well. You know, I've been out to Missouri to testify in support of groups that are pushing legislation there. We really try to follow the lead of cities like Oakland that have done so much to push back against these forms 
uh, of uh, mass surveillance. And we also see a lot of strong partnerships with, you know, organizations up in Massachusetts, organizations uh, out in San Diego, in Washington State, in a growing number of areas that are really concerned about this. But I also want to make it clear, this isn't just sort of a blue city fight. We see a lot of people, uh, you know, on the right who are really concerned about these same technologies. They don't care when the NYPD uses them, but they care a lot when tax authorities use them, when, you know, ATF uses it, when other, you know, federal agencies use it. And so there's this bipartisan, cross-partisan distrust of surveillance but a very partisan lens through which we view it, looking at different threats from different entities. So I think my last question for you is, and this is what also makes me very concerned, is when I read about AI and the racial component to AI and how just last week there's a pregnant woman, eight months pregnant, cops break into her house, guns are blazing because facial recognition said that she had committed a crime which she absolutely had not. And so we know, listen, I've said this before in the podcast. There are so many times where I've been in the bathroom where I have to like find a mm-hmm. white person. It's like, can you get this soap from this, you know, automatic dispenser? Can you turn on the water for me? Because certain faucets just aren't, you know, attuned to darker skin. You know, it's like I'm trying to use my palms. Mm-hmm. Usually I try and like get a white paper towel if I can find it or like a piece of toilet tissue just to like rub underneath it so it can identify whiteness. So there's still this horrible racial component to the mm-hmm. nuance of all this. Where does that factor in? Because that doesn't seem like that's in the forefront of some of the conversation and concerns with this particular oh, congestion yeah. pricing. No, and, and this is one thing we want to be clear. Racism is at the core of every American all policy. of the surveillance. Every single American policy <laughs> every ever American since policy. the history of this country. Yes, agreed. And every technology. and like Because when you think about uh, the issues of facial recognition, yes, the algorithm's biased. Yes, the training data's biased. Yes, the comparison data's biased. But even the camera systems are often optimized for white skin tones and have better performance rates with, you know, uh, white complexions versus darker complexions. There's racism at every level. And what we saw, we did a report earlier this year where we actually analyzed all of the summonses for uh, having an obstructed license plate, because it's illegal to have an obstructed license plate. And we know that this has been going up around the city, but what we found (laughs) and this will surprise precisely no one here, is that the rates of summonses for obstructed license plates were almost 10 times higher in the precincts with the largest numbers of Black residents versus precincts with the highest number of white residents. That there's this huge disparity. And so you have all of these white drivers who can basically cover their license plate with impunity while black drivers are going to be pulled over, where they're going to face a summons. So let's think about it. So it's not only putting black drivers at even higher risk of being, you know, stopped, of all of the potential violence that comes with stops, because we know that black drivers are much more likely to be attacked by police during a traffic stop than a white driver controlling for every conceivable factor. If there's just that much racism built into traffic stop. So it's not only putting more risk for black drivers, but you're essentially giving white drivers affirmative action to get away with avoiding tolls. So we're basically creating 
it's it's a greater like economic creating... disparity though because then black yeah. drivers have to pay not just the toll but also the exactly. fines and everything else that goes along with it exactly so you end up with a system where black drivers either have to pay the toll that white drivers can skip with impunity or face a higher risk of being pulled over and white drivers are given yet another leg up so as we're getting to the end here i'm going to throw a few things out there and the closing question and uh you can then uh run through as best you can and um Albert, thank you for rejoining the pod. Uh, you are one of our, been over the years, one of, I think, of our most regular guests, and it's always good and interesting always. to have you on. So, in a few directions, you mentioned these uh, drone announcements the NYPD is working, says they're working on. It's not clear really what the policies are, let alone the legal practices that are meant to constrain the NYPD's drone use. That's an interesting question. But I just point out to listeners who have uh, sympathy with with the, the police and the NYPD to think for a second about how much this resembles what happened in China during the pandemic with like sending drones out to tell people to go home and using those in, in essence as an enforcement system. Uh, you brought up geofencing. We've talked about that on the pod before. I am curious, and you might have a more informed idea than I do, how that relates to what the Daily News reported about the NYPD collecting the unique identifying number, the IMEI, on phones by getting people to unlock them who've been arrested and they seem to be storing these numbers, which as far as we know, no other local department has done. And we don't know why the NYPD is doing this or what it intends to do with this data. Uh, lastly, I know the motto of STOP is, we watch the watchers. Uh, you know, this comes from a Latin expression um, from the poet uh, Juvenal and the satires, uh, usually translated as who watches the watchman. I'm curious if you've had thoughts, obviously you're using generally that, on how that could be updated, um, the watchman part for the AI algorithmic era. Oh, my God. So many things to cover. Uh First off, the IMEI dragnet, this is a scandal. Like, all right, so uh, this is reporting from Graham Raymond at the Daily News, amazing piece. And what it found is that the NYPD precincts had quotas for how many people they coerced to hand over their phones so that this number, the serial number for the device, could be entered into an NYPD database. And it's in writing that it, it's clear from the story that people are being systematically coerced to unlock their phone, which is blatantly unconstitutional because you're not allowed to force people to unlock their phones. You're not allowed to force people to hand them over. And they're putting in writing that this needs to be the policy of the NYPD to trick people to do that. And the only benefit to that is to create even more of a database to track people's connections, to find a way with prepaid phones and phones that might not be as easy to track uh, who owns them, and then to map out those social connections. And like the fact that you're doing that on scale, like, look, let, let me be clear. If anyone has had this happen to them, I please get in touch with me, uh, info at stopspying.org, because this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. This is so blatantly unconstitutional. Um, 
And it just, again, is yet another example of the NYPD spending millions on unproven invasive approaches to law enforcement. They're just making it up as they're going along, and their philosophy doesn't seem to be all that different from what you would see in you know Shanghai or Beijing. Obviously, there's no comparison to the sort of grotesque surveillance-fueled ethnic cleansing of the Uyghurs in China. But when you look at the type of surveillance deployed in a lot of major Chinese cities, it's not all that different from what we see here in New York. The philosophy isn't all that different. It's the idea that by tracking everyone, we can prevent all the bad things from happening, and you just have to trust us that we'll get the balance right. And and with the drones, can we just take a moment to think about how dumb it is that you would have a hurricane coming and you're going to send up a couple thousand drones to go around the city with a little announcement going? Like, I don't, I like, hurricanes sound scary enough without a drone getting knocked out of the sky by <laughs> by the winds. And, like, it would literally take thousands of them to cover an area as large as New York City. Like, this is not a good way to solve a problem. This isn't a real solution. This is a PR gimmick. And the fact that we're talking about it instead of how terrible the mayor was at responding to a plume of smoke you could see from outer space is symbolic of Eric Adams' ability to, in a very Trump-like way, control the news cycle. He is so good at using the shiny thing to make us look at what he could do next instead of just how bad he has been to date. And really the abject failure of governance under this administration, like, I don't care if you're into politics or not. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. We deserve real, thoughtful, competent governance. And whether it's policing, whether it's traffic, whether it's tolling, whether it's anything else, we're we're not getting it. (laughs) <laughs> like there's the final word I'm like I don't know if you listen to this podcast or not album but we're singing the same song oh I know, I know I'm preaching to the converted but like it sometimes still feels good to, to sing it F-A-Q this has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/give if you'd like to pitch in. We're an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all on popula.com. Our hosts for this episode were me, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer, and our engineer, Adam Kamara. A special thank you to our guest, Albert Fox Khan of Stop. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, be well, and we'll be back soon with more. Thank you so much for joining us, Albert. I always learn so much. Um, please promise us you'll come back because I, I also feel like technology is changing and shifting so quickly. Um, we're talking about drones and cameras this week, but who knows what we'll be talking about in just a few months. And there's so many racial and class elements to the nuance of the story. I want to thank you for a, the work that you and stop do. Um, and also thank you for keeping the pressure on our electeds in Albany and also in New York city. Oh, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure. Albert, how old are you? 
uh, redacted for the podcast. I'm Beep. So, do you know who Kai Kanat is? I may be hideously mispronouncing the name. I don't think so. <laughs> That's the YouTube influencer who sent all the kids to Union Square. To oh, get yes, the yes. I'm just checking because none I of heard... us had heard of him. Well, I've They're seen not it called in YouTube influencers. <laughs> the, old, the people on the interwebs that are talking to the kids. That's that's who. I, I I I mean, this is a thing. Like, I'm such an old. I'd only seen it in print. I hadn't ever heard it spoken out loud. I will say, in my defense, I found out who Mr. Beast was slightly before this, and so that made me feel a bit more culturally relevant. But no, no, this is this is why I have amazing uh, colleagues and interns at Stop who can actually keep me somewhat relevant. Can we use this and we would actually beep your age uh, for our post-roll? Yes, yes, that's perfect. Though people oftentimes get a kick out of the fact that I was born in 1984. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But yeah, that that sounds great. Just beeping the uh, age. Though, I mean, what's the point? Everyone has all of it. I mean, that's the thing. You know, (laughs) when I was like fully aware of what happens in 2002 i this is adam this is not for the podcast um 2002 i snuck to cuba i just call it uninvited unannounced um and for, but the unindicted uninvited or? i was uninvited <laughs> no, I, by the government i just went and um i was unannounced and you know got there and i was like hi can you not say my passport they're like girl we know like just keep it moving um but you know this is before cell phones and everything else I obviously had to call my parents. I had to call my boyfriend at the time. Like, I was on the payphone constantly calling America. Like, I'm here. I'm doing blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, this idea that I snuck to Cuba means nothing because they know exactly when I went. They know exactly when I came back. They know exactly what I was doing there. And I was hanging out with Brits and Black Cubans. So, like, they know all of my business. It's just one of those things where, you know, for the longest time, I resisted Easy Pass. And I was like, Mm. I don't want the government knowing where I'm going. And my sister's like, you have a driver's license, a social security card, a hot passport. Like, they already know. You might as well, because I used to wait in that long line for the GW, Mm -hmm. because I was like, I don't want them knowing where I'm going. And she's like, sweetie, like, save yourself an extra hour. Like, get the damn Easy Pass. But here's the thing. Like, if we had stuck with Easy Pass, we probably wouldn't have the fake plate problem. Like, Mm -hmm. if we had stuck with something like Easy Pass... It probably would be, and like that's honestly what I think the solution for something like congestion pricing is. Because if you have that, then it's way more or limited in how it can be used. But it's the fact that, you know, when we turn license plates into the everything, you know, when we turn it into the social security number of driving, Mm -hmm. then it, yeah, it gets uh, violated a lot more. Mm. That's that's really important. Adam, can we somehow put that in? Oh, what? Okay, never mind. Never mind. Never. 